Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, today's story takes place in Marble Cliff, an upper-middle-class neighborhood just east of Grandview Heights. Do you remember Grandview Heights? Uh, from the Columbus area? Yeah, that is the Columbus suburb where Lola Chelley disappeared back in 1946. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's just recently. That's right. And, well, recently we've recently done it. Recently we've done it, <laughs> Yes. Right. And Lola's parents lived less than half a mile from Michael Dean Klitsch. Michael is our story. He was a 12-year-old boy enjoying his summer vacation in 1971. Michael was a very active kid. He loved the outdoors. His parents described him as adventuresome, maybe too adventuresome, his father said. And he loved sports. Michael played for a Little League baseball team, and there was a game scheduled for that evening of June 28. His family said it was an important game, and he was excited to be on the roster to play center field that night. But first, he wanted to practice his tennis serve in preparation for a tournament he'd recently entered. Michael was one of five children of Richard and Joan Klitsch, and his dad was a tennis pro and manager of the Columbus Indoor Tennis Club. Most or all of the Klitsch kids played tennis in their youth. Michael left his home on Cambridge Boulevard about 2.10 p.m. He was dressed in an aqua pullover, tan shorts, white knee socks, white tennis shoes, and his trademark horn-rimmed glasses. Maybe Michael didn't realize how hot it was because he wasn't stopped by the fact that it was boiling outside, 93 degrees with a heat index near 100. And so off he went, headed for the municipal tennis courts in Grandview Heights at West Goodale Boulevard, a good eight or nine blocks away. 
He told his mom that morning he was going and arranged for her to swing by and pick him up that afternoon. While walking to the courts, Michael stopped briefly to chat with some kids he knew. They were in front of the church not far from his home. It was about 2.30 p.m. And it appeared Michael did indeed make it to the courts. A maid working at the Summit Chase Apartments, a luxury high-rise across the street with a view of the tennis courts, told police she saw a boy playing tennis by himself. Given the heat of the day, it was no wonder he didn't have company. Well, no welcomed company anyway, because it seems very likely that at some point, Michael was no longer alone. Michael's mom, Joan, pulled up to the courts at 3.40 p.m. She had two other kids with her. She thought she'd take them and Michael to the nearby Grandview Swimming Club. She figured they could swim while she attended the Grandview Heights School Board meeting, of which she was a member, then get home in time for Michael to get ready for baseball. But Michael wasn't there. She wasn't too worried. Michael was a responsible sort, and he got around well enough by himself. Perhaps she had missed him, and he returned home. Like I said, it was hot out, and he did have a baseball coming up that night. So after waiting a while at the empty tennis courts just to be sure, Joan dropped Michael's two siblings off at the pool and kept her board meeting appointment. She fully expected to see Michael at home when she collected her other children later and returned home but he wasn't there either. Joan called police. Back at the courts, the cops found one of Michael's tennis balls. His parents recognized the brand. Michael got it from his father. It wasn't like him to leave something like that behind. Was he forcibly snatched from the courts right there? Michael's parents said he was uncomfortable around strangers. It wasn't likely he could be lured peacefully by someone he didn't know. There was another option. His father said, he's not the type of boy to run away. I feel he got into a car, either with someone he knew or someone who said they knew me. Then his father added, you know, you tell them not to get in cars, but who knows? There are such clever maniacs today. Joan Klitsch couldn't imagine him going with a stranger. She said, in some ways, Mike is adventuresome. He might try a double flip from the diving board, yet he does not like new situations or new people. The next morning, police organized searches of the Grandview Heights neighborhood where Michael was last seen. They focused on the wooded area from Dublin Road and Grandview Avenue East to Twin Rivers Road. They enlisted the watchful eyes of the Penn Central Railroad Police, whose tracks were right behind the courts. Everyone was on the lookout for the 4-foot, 10-inch, 85-pound boy with the brown hair and the blue eyes. Friends of the Klitsch family donated to a reward fund, quickly collecting $5,000. And so Michael's parents and siblings prayed and searched and waited. There were no ransom demands. Then, on Sunday, July 11, a half hour away, a family in Delaware County decided to take an evening walk. Elaine Gowell was in town from New York, visiting her parents near Galena, 25 miles from Grandview Heights. 
At about 7.45 p.m., she was joined by her brother, Robert Reel, and his two children, and they strolled a rural stretch of county road dotted with farmhouses. Many of the houses were just shells. This area was part of a new federal project. The construction of the Alum Creek Dam had already begun a mile and a half down the road. Part of this area would be underwater by 1974 to become Alum Creek Lake. About a quarter mile off the main county road, at the intersection of Africa and Plum Roads, the family turned down a dirt road. They picked berries and headed for an old quarry pond to skip a few rocks. Along the way, they became curious about a decrepit wooden tool shack a few feet off the road, partially covered by wild grapevines and framed by high weeds. They peeked inside and made a horrifying find. The body of a boy, decomposed and badly charred, was sprawled face up in the six-foot square shack. One side of the shack wall and part of the floor had been scorched, but the shack did not burn down as the killer clearly intended. An autopsy confirmed it was Michael. Authorities found his eyeglasses, tennis shoes, an aluminum tennis racket nearby in a gravel pit that locals used as a dump, 20 feet deep and partially filled with water. A pathologist determined Michael had been stabbed 26 times in the chest by a butcher knife. The body's advanced decomposition made it impossible to determine if he had been restrained or sexually assaulted, although investigators said without a ransom note, that was likely at the motive. The pathologist suggested Michael had been killed within hours of disappearing from the tennis courts. Investigators came to believe he had been killed elsewhere, then moved to the tool shack and set on fire. A couple cans of charcoal lighter fluid were found in the weeds nearby. There were few clues to go on. A resident living near the shack recalled seeing a light green Chevy car turn down the road late one night. But residents said they often saw strange people in the area, perhaps squatters as much as hikers. Still, it was hard not to wonder who knew that tool shed was there. It seemed likely Michael's killer was familiar with the area, enough so to turn on to that dirt road. Authorities spent a good time looking at area sex deviates. They followed every lead that came in, but they made no arrests. Even just two weeks after the body was found, Grandview Heights Sergeant Gary Stevenson bemoaned the fact that in interviewing witnesses, memories were already less sharp, details less exact. By August of 1971, the investigation was stone cold. There was one very strange lead. The Columbus Citizen Journal reported that in searching the pit where Michael's belongings were found, they came across bank slips with the name of a Grandview Heights businessman. It is. The police looked into it and cleared the man, saying he told them he hired an elderly man to clean his garage and that the old fellow unwittingly dumped the trash in that gravel pit. Nothing more of that was said, even though it seemed preposterous that a man from Grandview Heights disposed of garbage 
25 miles away where later a Grandview Heights victim's body would be found. In 1993, Delaware County Sheriff William Lavery, who was retiring, shared with a reporter his regrets that he couldn't solve the case. It bothers me the most because I haven't found out who did it, he said. It was a gruesome thing. I've gone over and over it. We just didn't get that one break. Lavery was a deputy then and said he worked 36 hours without stopping from the hour the body was found, but that rain had washed away potential clues. Over the years, tips came in from time to time. He checked every one of them out. He'd even taken a call the year before he retired, but none of them came to anything. In the decades after Michael's death, I found some interesting stories about his family. They did well. His mom, Joan, went on to become an attorney. I found stories about his brother becoming a bank president and his sister owning her own business. And Michael's sister, Jenny, she became a bit of a tennis star. At the age of 15, she qualified for the French Open. Oh, wow. Yeah. She revealed how important the sport was to her family, saying, the game of tennis is so much a part of the fabric of our lives. In 2003, the Upper Arlington News did a feature on Michael's dad, saying he was a pioneer of the sport of tennis in that area of the state. A longtime tennis coach and pro at several tennis clubs, it was said there were few people in central Ohio who hadn't either played with him or be coached by him. In 2014, I found he was still giving lessons at the age of 80. That's crazy. Also, Richard and Joan Klitsch founded a fund in Michael's memory. It's called the Klitsch Fund. It went on to pay for after-school programs, school camps, scholarships, and even purchasing automated external defibrillators for the Grandview Heights City Schools in 2005. Hmm, That's great there. Sounds like the family is very important to that community up there. Absolutely. Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say. For tonight's Armchair Detective, we have with us Vicki Russell from Hilliard, which is a suburb of Columbus. Hi, Vicki. Hi. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, my name is Vicki Russell, and I have lived in the Hilliard area for most of my life. I know the area pretty well and love it here. Live right outside, went to Ohio State University. I have a son that goes to Ohio State and another one that goes to Ohio University. So... Love the area. Really excited. Deep roots. Yes, yes. (laughs) Wonderful. Hey, had you heard about this case before? I had not. So this was very surprising to me, having been here for so long. It is, uh, the, the area that this took place in is actually very close to my home. So to have not heard of it was very surprising to me. Oh, wow. I'm glad we could surprise you. So you've heard our story about this case. Is there... Anything that in particularly really stands out to you? Is this, the, is this an appropriate time to tell you what I think may have happened? Please do. Um, Absolutely. I can make a connection. I did so much reading. The Citizen Journal, which is an, old, um, an older newspaper source, as you know, but I know some other listeners may not know. In doing that, I was absolutely blown away that both law enforcement and the newspapers 
were giving these couple routes that he could have gone from his home on Cambridge to this tennis court, and they were all by sidewalk. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy, and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's interesting is my husband and I went and did this walk, and I'd love to show you my Fitbit so you can see how many steps we did, because we just kind of think what made most sense as a 12-year-old boy. Right behind the tennis court is a railroad track, and that railroad track has been a connection where people are saying, gosh, he had made some comments. Michael had made these comments about what would happen if I jumped the train, and now people are all over the place saying, what if he tried to jump the train? That's not what I think happened. I think he had an intrigue to that railroad track. So that's what brought us, um, my husband said, as a 12-year-old boy, what do you think drew him um, to, to that railroad, you know, to the, the idea of the railroad track? And it could be just a fantasy, but we looked at Google Maps, we went walking, and we realized at the end of where that church is that he stops and talks with his friends, if you take that, that road to the end, you can cut through yards that are secluded that get you right to that railroad track, you take a left on that railroad track and it takes you directly, and I mean directly, the shortest route to that tennis court. So if you have a kid, and we know we're always going to take shortcuts when we're kids. And if he took that route and cut through somebody's yard, many yards, these are secluded homes that would have been in the back, got on that railroad track, that would explain his lack of being seen for so long. There's a backboard on the back of the tennis courts where he was going by himself and practicing his serve. When I went to go walking, there was a couple there that was playing tennis. My husband and I walked behind the tennis court and there was, it was kind of interesting, one tennis ball sitting back there in the same place that they said that that one tennis ball was that Michael left behind. What we found was if you leave that gate open a little bit, one, one or two balls can go behind there and they go unnoticed. I don't think Michael was abducted. This is my point. I don't think he was abducted. Oh, wow. Okay. Continue. I absolutely 100% believe that it got hot. I think he hit a few tennis balls. I think he inadvertently left a tennis ball behind. I think he, he got his stuff. I think he probably wanted to make it home before mom got back there because it was a little too hot and he still had a lot of time. I think he probably took a route home and somewhere along the way, he, I believe he probably went into somebody's home. It is virtually impossible for me to believe that there is that bank slip that was found 30 miles away, 25, 30 miles away from a businessman in Grandview at the same location where there were Michael's clothes in that gravel pit right by the shack where his body was found. And common sense says that those things were dumped there at the same time. If you can still read a bank slip, if there are clothes that are there, you can see all of these things. Those things were dumped around the same time. To tell me that within the same week, a businessman had an older gentleman cleaning out his garage, dumped items 25 miles away, there's your answer. There's a quarry down the street from Marble Cliff. 
There's a quarry right there. There's also a quarry in Alum Creek that's right by there too. Somebody knew of both of those locations. There's your connection. The businessman that's sitting in Grandview knows the answers to this. And unfortunately, I think he's gone, long gone by this time, but he knows the answers to this. That's my, that, that is what I believe. To stab a boy 26 times with a butcher knife is a, that is not a, I saw this little kid walking down the street and that's a sexual deviant type of thing. That's a rejection possibly. That is a a crime of passion. That is a kid that saw something or knew something that shouldn't. That is not a stranger type of stabbing. There's something else involved there. In addition, just think about this. You have a 12-year-old that's walking with a tennis racket, balls, multiple balls, because nobody goes and plays tennis with one ball. He's walking, and you're telling me that somebody abducted him with a butcher's knife and also was able to contain with the other hand a 12-year-old and a tennis racket and all of those things without this kid squiggling or anything? That's probably not likely. He went knowingly someplace. I do believe that he was killed in a home, and I believe then he was transported there to somebody that knew where that was. Then I think the biggest hiccup here is there was the missed opportunity from the police. They said that they interviewed the businessman, and he said, hey, there was a guy cleaning my cleaning my garage, and he inadvertently dropped things into this, this gravel pit up at the quarry at Alum Creek. That's fine. So they said, okay, and they clear him and say, this much must be a sexual deviant. So our next course of action is, and please don't get me started because this makes me really angry, but they were going to go interview the homosexuals in the area. We lost so much time with them interviewing people that had nothing to do with it. They, this is where I say that now that would not have been the case We were looking for a sexual deviant, so we went and we interviewed homosexuals in the area. That doesn't even, in today's standards, that doesn't even make sense. Right. They were afraid to look at one of their own. This was one of their own. This was a white, middle-class, suburban, heterosexual man that was living amongst them. And unfortunately, our law enforcement... And the community didn't want to see it. It was an easier route to say it's the boogeyman. That is probably the most thorough and stand-up theory uh, I've heard on this case. I don't even know where where to try to find fault because I think you hit all of the key points. And as to the businessman, I agree. There is no way that stuff was out there by a coincidence. And if he was a businessman, that tells me he probably has some standing in the community and yeah, he wasn't just an average, you know, resident that he probably had some standing in the community. And if they didn't if they weren't necessarily protecting him, they were allowing it to sway their opinion as to whether they thought he was guilty. The dad did make the the comment that he thought it was quite possible that his son had gotten into a car with somebody that he knew or that somebody pretended to know him, the, the father. So I think the father would probably have agreed with you that, it, that there was a connection and they just couldn't find it. What do you think, Paula, about the fact that it is a butcher knife? Because that's just such a cumbersome, if they would have told me a fishing knife or something you could put in your pocket, it seems like that would make more sense. The butcher's knife is the thing that actually tells me that this was done in somebody's home. 
A butcher knife, you may throw it in the backseat of a car, but that would mean that it was more premeditated. And I just don't, and it's stranger kind of thing. For me, I believe that this happened, that that's the thing that tells me it happened in somebody's home. And I liked you pointing out that they found his tennis racket, you know, the stuff that he was carrying with him in that pit. And to picture somebody driving up next to him on the courts, wrestling him into the car, making sure all of his items go into the car with him, and then driving away before the kid can get back out of the car. It just seems so unlikely. It would seem much easier if he had willingly entered someplace with his tennis racket and tennis balls. And and that's how they had possession of that. And so that part of the story also makes sense in terms of your theory. Simplest answer is usually it. But in this case, I think we are, this really is just unfortunate that because of the times we were just not willing to look at the obvious. That's unfortunately the case in many of these that have happened uh, so long ago is that we weren't willing to look at, at our neighbors. The boogeyman was so much, and I hate to say it, but the boogie was so much safer. When it's not somebody you know. I will, tell, I will say, before I spoke with you, I was leaning towards somebody who had experience because it just seemed like the ability to snatch a kid out of public had to have been so well choreographed that this is somebody who had done it before. And right. the taking of the body to a particular place so far away made me feel like it must have been planned but I'll tell you, your theory has, has really changed my mind on this. I absolutely see the, the image that you're painting. Well, are you familiar with the level of development that has happened in Columbus in that, in that particular area also? Because Not at all. Me, businessman, the only thing that keeps in my head is that it's somebody that was in development. And so with having that quarry that is, and I mean, the quarry, the quarry is right outside of Marble Cliff where that the quarry is. And having that also, Alum Creek having the quarry where his belongings were found, that businessman, that's all it would take would be somebody in development, in, in real estate, that would know that those two areas would know the development of both areas, that would understand what's happening in Alum Creek. That was your connection. I mean, yes, it's 35 miles away, but what was happening at the time answers our questions. There was big development planned and happening that was taking place. That, that Alum Creek, even though it wasn't underwater until 1974, the plans for that were happening in 68, 69, and 70. So absolutely somebody would know of Alum Creek sitting right there if they're in real estate and development. A lot of what you've brought up makes me wonder if the police really do know who's responsible, but they can't say so publicly because they just didn't have the evidence to pin it on them. And that maybe even possibly the family has a good idea. I've seen a lot of cases where after it gets resolved, you find out that the family felt all along that they knew who might have been responsible. But again, short of having the evidence... It's never a name that comes to, to public, you know, to the public consciousness. Police could have very well interviewed them and cleared them, but with information that they're not willing to release. It could be bigger than that. I just, I find that less likely. I just, I think that that's our connection. And unfortunately, I also think that if that's the case, that, that the answers to this are, have probably long been gone. 
Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. I think another catch-22 when it comes to police not releasing information, I think of the Amy Mahalovic case. And, you know, only recently, like in the last couple of years, did they allow the public to know that this really strange homemade blanket and curtain had been found near her body, and they believed that it was used to wrap her body. And it was so unique that clearly human hands had altered this thing to make it theirs. And if they had shown this immediately, somebody might have recognized it. Instead, they held it like it was a big secret until, you know, I don't know, 20, how many years has it been since Amy Mahalovic, 20 years or whatever? And it's like, now we'll show you the blanket. Well, who remembers now? You know, sometimes there are details where it would be really helpful if the police did put them out in the public because we, the public, can help solve it by letting them know. And if there had been a way to address the subject of this businessman, these strange bank slips, in a way that people might might have triggered a memory from somebody, you know, then it could have been helpful. But you're not going to get that now. I mean, that is lost. So you're, uh, and I'm just recapping, your theory is that when he was at the tennis courts, he was inappropriately dressed for the heat, probably decided to go back home and took a shortcut. So he willingly walked away from the courts and whatever happened, happened on his way back home, probably along the railroad tracks through the cold shade of the trees. Yes. Got it. I like it. There's houses back there, too, and he could have been invited into one of the houses by somebody he knew. Who knows? But it certainly, he was, I do not believe he was abducted. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. New Moons is an indie rock band from Cincinnati made up of Curtis Dressman, Tom Dressman, and Zach Howard. Steve, we're in our second year of podcasting, so we're going to bring some of our year one featured musicians back for another round. Woohoo! And this is our second visit with New Moons. If you want to see New Moons perform live, they'll be at the Shrunken Head in Columbus on October 11. And on October 13, at 7 p.m., they'll be taking the Findlay Market stage at Cincinnati's Blink Festival. And if you can't see them in person, you can always stream them on Spotify. Well, at the start of the podcast, we played a clip of their song, Clarity. Here's the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
My name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.